Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. Down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with D&D? I know I am, and I am joined by the uh, um, the CEO of Down With D&D Enterprises, Sean the Mad Wizard Merwin. How are you, Sean? I'm doing okay, Chris. How are you? I, I totally changed up the intro. I, I saw that. It, it has thrown me off, and now my whole <laughs> my whole game is going to be thrown off. But you know what? We'll pull it together here. And, and the reason I say that, uh, the CEO of Down With D&D Incorporated, or Enterprises, is because we are going to delve into the Acquisitions Incorporated book starting today. Uh, we will cover the first chapter, and over the subsequent weeks, we'll cover some more of the chapters. So are you excited about that, Sean? I am. I'm looking forward to talking about it. Me too. But before that, we should probably get to a few uh, announcements, or at least uh, news items. Uh, the first one being the Unearthed Arcana, A New Barbarian and a New Monk Path. Mm-hmm. And I think people have been waiting. Uh, we've gotten a lot of adventures, and some of the more mechanically inclined players and DMs out there are clamoring for... Uh, more of the stuff that they want, so this is a a a push in their direction, if you will. That uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so huh? You think so? Like, doesn't isn't the AI book like a, got a bunch of like mechanical stuff in it? From what I've read, it has it has some mechanical stuff, but not as much. You know, players are looking for like Player's Handbook two. You know, the the, the people that I'm talking about are clamoring for new. New rules, new classes to play, new you know subclasses and so on. By new rules, you mean new classes to play. They're, they're looking for, for um, specific character options. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, because, because to me, the AI book gives you a lot of interesting options for for play. It does. Uh, as far as like, um, as players too, like we're, we're going to go build our reputations and our, our organization and things like that. Yep, there's definitely mechanical things in the book um, for people to play with but not at the character level as much as what we're seeing here, say. Yeah, okay. Let's let, Well, let's delve into it then. Let's, yeah. let's do it. So the first one is the Wild Soul Barbarian. So this is essentially a barbarian who's been exposed to the magic of the Feywild, so we're going to mix some of that primal ferocity with magic at this point, especially fairy magic. Yes. Um, do you want to just talk about... So that's that's the theme, right? Like uh, it's, it's all about that, that kind of magical, uh, mischief-y type stuff. At least that's what I thought it was going to be. But that isn't exactly what it is, uh, theme-wise, as far as the abilities go. Would you, uh, as a high level, would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. I, I think at, at the highest level, that is exactly what, what we're seeing. Yeah. So the first ability you get is, um, and we'll go the first two, because the first one's just kind of flavor. It's called Lingering Magic. So the Barbarian can, a number of times per day, equal to their Constitution uh, modifier, uh, detect magic. Mm-hmm. And the nice little flavor piece here is that the barbarian will glow the color of the school of magic to learn the school of magic instead of seeing the aura around the item. I mean, they'll still see the aura around the item and detect the object within thirty feet. But uh, I think it's neat that you can that it's the barbarian that glows, right? That that's flavorful, right? It's it's pretty cool, and it reinforces the whole point of this, which is your your soul has been infused with magic of the Feywild. Makes perfect mm-hmm. sense. Yep. Now, here comes the the ability that is actually the kind of crux of this uh, path, this primal path, the Wild Surge. So this is a chart of 1d8 things that can happen, and this chart 
uh, you roll on it whenever you enter a rage because wild magic surges out of you. And this is where I think it kind of gets away from the fairy thing, the Feywild thing. I never really think of it. Do you think of the Feywild as being chaos magic? Not necessarily. Um, definitely magic, definitely strange, but not necessarily chaotic. Yeah, right. Exactly. And this is this is very much chaos, right? This is this kind of falls in line with the um what the 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 chaos magic uh, sorcerer. Yeah, the wild magic sorcerer. Yeah. Yeah, the wild magic sorcerer. Um, the wild surges they're pretty neat. There's eight of them. Um, they do interesting things and they're kind of powerful. And at first I was like, I don't know if they're too powerful. But then I was like, well, you can't really control which one you're gonna get. So that kind of makes it a little bit better so you can't plan for things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's neat. What do you think? Personally, as as a player and a DM, I don't like things that I think as as a, as the misdirected Mark podcast would say, um, is it latency? Is that what you talk about? Yeah, this will this will create some latency. It, it creates latency, right? It it takes you away from the actual story that you're telling and delves deeper and deeper into rules where you have to sort things out. And so I I understand why people like Wild Magic. Um, And at some points, I like it as well. But when it's a constant thing in the game, to me, it it takes away from the game too much. Now, this is less so because instead of rolling on a D100 chart, you're rolling on a D8 chart. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I like I like the flavor of it, um, the mechanics of it. I would want to see and play more before I made a final decision. Yeah, I think if anybody is going to play this particular path, they're sh- they're. So first off, I think if Wizards is smart and they make this a publishable thing, they should put a PDF somewhere that you can print this off and it's on one page. Yes. Oh, so yeah. that the the barbarian can actually print it off and put it like next to their character sheet. Yep. Because then, then it becomes less of a latency problem, right? Like it's like I'm raging, I roll. This is what happens. Yep. That's that's so much simpler. And you're right. It is. It's the same thing with the the um the wild sorcerer. Like I would, I always if if somebody's playing that, I'm like, let's make a photocopy of that chart so yep. that you have it. Absolutely. Yeah. That is that is the way to cut down on a lot of the latency there. Very true. Um. Then it becomes then it becomes a lot like a spellcaster. Like it's even a little simpler than a spellcaster because you're just looking at that chart. Yep. Um. Let's talk about the actual powers. I'm just going to touch on a couple of them. Yep. Um, so the first one is a necrotic energy burst from you, and each creature within 30 feet of you takes 1d10 necrotic damage, and you gain temporary hit points equal to the sum of the necrotic damage dealt to the creatures. I'm like, wow. Yeah. But then I was then I was like, well, it's only a one of eight chance of that actually happening. Yeah, but still, that's outrageous, right? And notice it's creatures and not enemies. So you're taking 1d10 um, from all of your... Uh, allies as well if they're within 30 feet of you when you rage it is also a uh that is also a, a hindrance to that ability yes yeah so it's you know it's it's chaos it is it's pure chaos yep. um to me it's probably the most eh, maybe not the most it's one of the most overblown ones in my opinion because it could be really useful it could also be not useful at all like you're fighting one thing and you just knocked you know four of your allies for 1d10 hit points right right yeah, but um, um, you know, if you're in a room with you know thirty kobolds and they're all swarming around you, that's that's a it, lot. It is it is a ton, right? Like that is that is to me that was the um, 
that was the other end of the spectrum, right? Like right. there's the, it's not that great end of the spectrum. They're like, it's super good spectrum, right? And because it's random, you don't, you can't really plan for it, which is kind of neat if you ask me. Yeah. Um, it, it's where I was at. I was probably at the same place you were. I'm like, I don't know if this is too good or if it's not good enough or what the deal is with it. But I think it's. I think I'd like to see it in play. Obviously, yeah. The, the, I mean, the, the problem with it, and the problem with any rule you make, is you you know, if it can be abused, it will be abused. So you know, what you get then is you get the druid summoning twenty small creatures all around the barbarian, who then you you know uses this ability because at, at higher levels you get to roll twice and take the one you want, right? No, you get to, as a bonus action, do it every time. No, no, at, at a higher level there, you... One of the at, higher level abilities. At, at, at 14th level, you right. can use a... You can roll as a bonus action, you can re-roll, re-roll. on the wild. Okay. Oh, re-roll on the wild. Yeah. So replacing your current effect with a new one. Okay. So every round, you can spend a bonus action to... to, to yeah. To do it again, right? That doesn't mean you're going to get what you want, but you can at least True. keep taking chances at it. Yeah. So you know, it's because it is chaotic. It is chaotic you know, because it is unpredictable. You can't predict it. You just have to be very careful. That's all. Yeah, it, I think because of the unpredictability of it, it's what makes it okay for some of these things. Like, because yep. you never know what's going to happen. Um, because there's the one. That is, um, plant life temporarily grows around you until your rage ends the ground within 10 feet of you is difficult terrain. That's not that good in certain situations, but it's really good in other certain situations. Sure. So really the play style that this, this thing is pushing is like when you rage, cause you still get the stuff that you rage, that you get when you rage, which is, um, right. you know, bonus, uh, bonuses on strength checks and strength saving throws, um, uh, resistance to certain kinds of damage. Yep. And I think there's a third thing too that I'm just forgetting at the moment. Uh, extra damage, rage damage. Yes, rage damage. You're still getting all that, plus you're getting this thing. And then I went and I looked at this compared to a lot of the other things that are static, and it seems like these are way more powerful, but because of you never know what you're going to get, it kind of balances out, yep. in my opinion. Yep. Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily have a problem balance-wise so much as just time-wise. But, yeah, I, I think... I think this will scratch a, an itch in many players. Um, you know, those people that love the chaos of the Wild Sorcerer but don't like playing a magic user, say. You know, now you can play the Barbarian and get that same sort of feel. Yeah, you can. Uh, I also, as a as a person who would be in a party with this character, would want to stay very far away from them. Yeah, that's, that's the whole other thing. In many games I've run over the years where there has been this kind of Wand of Wonder, you know, wild sorcerer sort of thing probably half the deaths that have happened at my tables have happened because of something like this where it's actually a player doing uh damage to another player rather than (laughs) me as the dm doing it that's uh yeah i i can totally see that right like uh, that makes perfect sense um all right let's move on to the next ability which is uh magic reserves so this is a fascinating ability. Um, you can touch somebody, and then you roll a d4, and then you can give them a random spell slot back based on based on the the die that you roll. Yep. Uh, this is okay. This is weird in some ways because it's the spell slot that you roll. So if they don't have a spell slot open of that level, it doesn't do anything. True. And at 6th level when you're casting it, you're, if your party members are also 6th level, 
um, the highest spell slot they have is third. Um, so if you roll a four, it doesn't do anything. Yeah, and you take damage Although, equal to the num- five times the number yeah. you rolled. And, and of course, it's, it does say if the creature you touch can't recover a spell slot of that level, either because they're not a spellcaster, I assume, or because they don't have it, they instead gain temporary oh. hit points equal yeah. to five times the number rolled. So basically, that part. So basically, you're taking force damage to give them either a spell slot or temporary hit points equal to the damage you're taking. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Like yeah. that doesn't seem bad at all. Uh, I actually like that a lot better now. <laughs> and I, I, I missed that the first time I read it. I, I'm going to stereotype now, though. Most of the people that play barbarians, um, either as a player type or because they want to play that type of player, aren't big on sharing. Right? They are the one that wants to stand in and do five thousand points of damage in a round, uh, and and you know take very little. So. It's not for the player that oh, all I play is the barbarian. They're not likely to to appreciate this uh, ability for what it does. Uh, yeah, I I totally see that. I I don't necessarily think this barbarian path is aimed at those players. True, I I would agree with that as well. Yeah, I think this is aimed at players like me who want a little bit of a. Mm-hmm. A little bit of fun with my giant sword, because I get bored with a giant sword, but this would make me want to play a barbarian, because I would be able to use my giant sword and then also do some other things. Yep. Uh, so the next one is Arcane Rebuke. Uh, you want to talk about this one? I actually like this one a lot. Uh, yeah. So if you are targeted as the barbarian uh, by something that forces you to make a saving throw, that creature that forced you to make the saving throw... Uh, you can give that target 3d6 force damage as a reaction. So in other words, they cast a spell at you, you have to make a saving throw. Oh, by the way, boom, here's 3d6 force damage as a reaction. Uh, I'm fine with it. I am too. I think you you had one note that you thought only if they fail their saving throw. here's, Here's my thing, and this is a overall game design thing. At higher levels, it's very hard to keep enemy magic users alive. They generally have fewer hit points, and a lot of times they're dead within the first two rounds, um, at least in my experience. And you can use magic to keep them alive for a couple extra rounds. Um, but So picking on the th- creatures that force you to make a saving throw, which is generally spellcasters... Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't like the fact that you're you know they're they're getting pounded on a little extra hard right off the bat here. So my thought would be only if the barbarian fails the saving throw that they take the damage. Um, that way, you know it f- for me that works flavor wise because they're pushing magic into your soul. If that magic affects your soul, then Boom! There's a there's a reverb that comes back and strikes the the character the, the caster. That makes sense. I like that. Yeah, um, I actually like that a lot more too. Yeah, and you know, for me, it's just something bad happened to me, so something bad's going to happen to you. If nothing bad happened to me, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. I uh, I think that's uh, pretty solid, actually. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. a big deal. Just something I would do. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, based on the idea that wizards are hard to keep alive at higher levels, which they are. I mean, usually that is who gets targeted. Yep. So I don't know if that's a design problem with the game or if that's actually just a me- mechanics problem with the game. Like, uh, like people not designing around wizards very well, or is it just that's just the way the game plays? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a little bit of both. Probably because there are, there are a whole bunch of ways to make wizards being a pain in the butt. I also think that wizards also are always seen as like the the largest threat. Mm-hmm. In a fight, so, I mean, it's hard. Unless you can figure out a way to make something equally threatening, of course they're going to kill the wizard first. Yeah, and, and the only other the only other thing I, I'm i not great with here is, like, if, if you get stung by a giant scorpion, right, you have to make a saving throw. But it's just poison damage. Um, so I don't... It loses, you know, that connection to that flavor here because it's not... It's not magic that's... Oh, you're right. Yes. But, uh, again, it's that's not a huge deal. Um, and I think that's sort of me putting my design into something where maybe that's not the intention. Yeah. The, I, I think the intent with this is that you you happen to have a bunch of magic right. crackling within your soul. So it's not about magic affecting you. It's about when something, um, something forces you to make a saving throw yeah. when you're raging. Yep. Um, and I think that's okay. Like anything that makes you make a saving throw while you're raging. Yeah, it's because because okay. think about it. It's cool when somebody comes up and grabs you from behind, and you have to make like a strength saving throw or whatever it is. Right. I think it's actually just a strength check. I don't know. There's a lot of ones where like you get attacked, and then somebody something tries to grapple you, and you have to make a saving throw. Well, or or like be knocked prone, right? Make yeah. a strength saving throw or be knocked prone. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's okay. It's not as flavorful as I would like. But I can certainly understand the the flavor behind it. Yeah. With that, I really like the idea more that um, if you fail the saving throw, you do the 3d6 damage back. Because you've been affected, so then your body lashes back out. Exactly. Yep. Um, And we already kind of briefly touched on Chaotic Fury, but at 14th level, and I think this is a really good 14th level ability... You can use your bonus action to roll on the wild surge magic table, uh, the wild surge table that you have again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, you can just constantly be rolling up a new wild surge every turn. Although it's random, so have fun with that. Yep. <laughs> can, I, can I mention one more off the this, the wild surge table because yes. I think it's really fun and it's uh it's like uh i want i feel like i wonder if teos abadiah I, I was, like wrote this <laughs> i was wondering if you were going to mention this <laughs> yeah so the third one is is you conjure 1d4 intangible spirits that look like flumps in, un, in unoccupied spaces within 30 feet of you each spirit immediately flies 30 feet in a random direction at the end of your turn all spirits explode and each creature within five feet of one or more of them must succeed in a dexterity saving throw or take 2d8 force damage mm-hmm Boy, that is a super random yeah. situation, too. Yeah, think of all the randomness that goes into that, right? First, you, it's the random, do I roll a, a three? Yes, okay. Now roll a d4 to see how many spirits there are. Now figure out randomly in what unoccupied it's... spaces within 30 feet they are. Then again, randomly figure out which direction that they fly in for 30 feet. Yep. Right? Oh, it's, so it's just... Yeah. Uh, I mean, on the bright side, it's unoccupied spaces within 30 feet, um, so that's not random. You actually pick. Because it, uh, it doesn't say random on that one. Yeah, so and, you... and, and that's another thing that, that I was going to mention about all of this, was there's a lot of things here where you're not sure if it's random or if you pick. 
Yeah. I mean, this the text could be cleaned up a little bit to make it easier to read, right. but like that one is too complicated. Yeah. There's too many steps to, to, to the end of it. Right. So that, that once again, lays into your, uh, your latency problem. Yeah. Um, like the necrotic one is simple enough. It's just roll a D 10 and then take some damage and add it to yourself. Yeah. Uh, there's one that's like uh, you teleport 20 feet to an unoccupied space. You can see until your rate energy ends, you can activate this effect each on each of your turns as a bonus action. So you can teleport each round for yeah. 20, 20 feet as a bonus action. That's pretty cool. That one's simple, yeah. right? Like it's easy to understand. Yeah. And even number seven, which is a long entry is pretty cool and it's easy. Yes. Um, it's yeah. just your weapon becomes, you deal psychic damage. Um, and you can throw it. You can it. throw it. Yeah. And it'll come back and it to comes you. back. So that's, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I like it a lot. Also, number eight, it's a beam of brilliant light lances towards from your chest in a, in a 60 foot line. And then anybody and it takes, you know, makes a constitution saving throw, takes 2d8 damage, radiant damage and is blinded until the start of your next turn. Mm -hmm. Like it's simple, right? Yep. All right. So that's the, that's the um, path of the wild soul. I think it's pretty good. I think it just needs a little touching up here and there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a big barbarian player. uh, And I, but yeah, I would be interested in, in running a game with someone playing this just to see how it happened. Yeah, me too. All right, let's talk about the way of the astral self. Mm-hmm. So this is a monk path. Um, t- to be fair to everybody out there, I'm not a huge monk fan anyway in D&D. I think it's, uh, it, it, it kind of drives me crazy a lot of the time. But um, that's because most of the time I'm running games that tend to have a... Uh, I don't know, medieval or Victorian bent to them, and they don't fit in the settings and situations that I'm usually setting up. Mm-hmm. So I can, I mean, monks are fine, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with monks. Um, when I read this one, I'm like, if you know what Shonen Jump is, and if you know it and you're an anime fan, I'm like, this is straight up a Shonen anime, Shonen Jump anime manga show that I, show or book that I haven't seen yet. <laughs> okay, and now I'm going to give my little take on it. Sure. So this monk, the conceit of this monk is your key is actually connected to an astral self, which is a translucent embodiment of you. So somewhere on the astral plane, say, there is a being that is you, and you sort of share this key uh, that is so prevalent in your life. And so what, what happens is you use key points to bring pieces of that astral self to you and then use them and they give you abilities and you know as i'm reading this i'm like oh that's that sounds familiar and then i realized that i've worked on two products that are very similar to this um for cobalt press i worked on the dragon magic book and i put i created an arcane tradition called dragon mage where the wizard uses spell slots to bring aspects of dragons to themselves. So you kind of wear like a dragon mask and that gives you a bite and abilities, things like the way you can see changes. I also worked on, um, in our uh, adventure, Return of the Lizard King, Chris, I created a circle of reaping for death druids. I remember. Which is pretty much the same thing. You use spell slots to bring bring to yourself aspects of death so yeah the like, grim a lot of grim reaper aspects grim reaper really right so there's the death mask and there's the death cloak and there there's the death scythe and there's the pale horse you know all of these things you can 
bring and they give you special abilities that last for a certain amount of time uh, when you burn spell slots so this is right in that same wheelhouse so in that sense i love this conceit because it's something that i've i've told myself i'm going to do one for every spell casting class uh, i haven't gotten to that point yet but this is bringing it um to the monk class powered by key points so in my shonen jump manga that doesn't exist <laughs> the the dragon mage and the and the death druid are like specific characters right right but the like the general conceit of the world would be this like people can use their willpower to basically summon parts of uh summon aspects of their their power from another dimension to uh to give them you know abilities beyond the mortal ken yeah which is the most anime thing i've heard in a very long time right and and the reason i the reason i like this is because i I, as a player, don't like to play full spellcasters. Uh, I don't mind, like, bards, maybe, because you do other things other than just cast spells, but, like, wizards and, and even clerics. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan because it's just, like, cast a spell, cast a spell, cast a spell, cast a spell, and, and I want a little variance. So this, for me, is a way to play spellcasters but in a different way because you're not using your spell slots to cast spells you're using them to you know create aspects and this is kind of what they're doing here with the druid so rather that or sorry with the monk so rather than using your key points and you know just doing the flurry of blows use a key point flurry of blows use a key point you know it's it's giving you other options to play with sort of so let's actually talk about what you do yep. so the um what you're doing is summoning like we said the parts of your astral self to uh to kind of hover around you as like these these translucent pieces um it starts with the arms and then eventually you'll get a a a, a visage so a, a helmet or a face piece and then um you will be able to do a thing that makes you even better with both of those things at the same time and then you'll get to uh, eventually invoke the whole self the whole astral self around you yep um Let's talk about how that works mechanically now. By the way, the reason I say this is the most anime thing ever is because you can describe what these things look like. So if you've ever watched a, a shonen anime or a shonen, or read a shonen jump manga, like this is right in the wheelhouse of some of those kinds of things. Uh, like you use your willpower to summon stuff around you that makes you more powerful. Um, so let's talk about the arms of the astral self. So uh, for two key points, you get to summon these translucent arms that, that hover above your shoulders a little bit, and then you can replace your strength with your wisdom for ability checks and saving throws. Mm -hmm. for, for strength ability checks and saving throws. So, uh, I mean, normally you could use dexterity, too, at this point, um, because that's how monks work. No, th this is just ability checks and saving throws, not attack rolls. Uh, not yeah, not attack rolls. But if I remember correctly, doesn't the monk get to use? Uh, is the monk just for strength for for attack rolls? Is that what that is? No, for attack rolls, they they can use strength or dex um, for their monk weapons. But, okay. But this is if you if you um, need to knock a door down and, uh, and make a strength check, or if you're going to be tripped and need a strength saving throw, you can replace it, your wisdom uh, for strength. Uh, this also lets your lets you use wisdom instead of strength for attacks too. Right. So this right. makes wisdom wisdom the key ability for monks if you use this path. Right. As as long as you use these two key points, and the important thing is you get to use these benefits for ten minutes. 
Uh-huh. This isn't just like one attack. This is this hangs in there for a while. Which, by the way, also very anime. Yep. Putting a timer on it. Just just throwing it out there. Like whoever whoever wrote this one up was a was a fan. I'm pretty sure of anime. If they weren't, I'm I'm, I'm don't know where they got this idea from. Right. It's really good. Uh, so th- the other thing is you get an extra attack when you use your arms f- for for the attack action. Yep. Uh, and it doesn't cost you a key point, which right. gets you around the flurry of blows thing. Yep. Although you get one less attack than the flurry of blows. Right. So you would take your normal attack, and then you you would uh, get an extra attack if you have these arms of the astral self going. Yeah, if you spend your bonus action to do it, because you need yep. a bonus action for flurry of blows to be able to spend a key point. I was I was double checking. By the way, D and D Beyond is wonderful for stuff like that. Yes, Just throwing it, it out there. Yes, it is. Um, so that's neat. I, I really like it. Like you can you can have the, the the two examples they have is like you have the like the the muscled arms of a knight mm-hmm. or like the mechanical arms of a modron. Yeah, like your spirit visage could be a modron. That would be interesting. That would be. So the next ability is visage of the astral self. Um, so when you put this visage on, you also get the arms. And you get advantage on insight and intimidation checks, and you can see in both magical and non-magical darkness for 120 feet. You don't have to actually summon the arms with the visage of the astral self. Okay. Yeah, you can spend one key point as a bonus action or as part of summoning your astral arms. You have the choice. Okay, yes. Because sometimes you might just want the visage. True, yeah. Because it costs less, that's why. Right, so if you use the two... You get the astral arms at six level f- uh, free, basically, along with the visage. Or if you uh, just need to see in the dark, or if you just need that advantage to intimidate someone, you can no, just spend it, one key point. It's cumulative. Like you have to spend two to arms. Right. Um, you have to spend one for the visage, but you can spend them the three points to get them both in the same action. Uh, I I don't think so. On, yeah, it, on your turn, on your turn, you, you can, can spend, spend one, one key point, point as a bonus point. action, or, or as part of your. Uh, astral arms right or as part of summoning your astral arms so you can spend one key point as a bonus action or as part of summoning your astral arms you summon this visage you're you're right you're right because of the where the commas are right the, hey everybody i confused that because of the the way that it was written although it's written perfectly fine so don't don't that's not the text's fault that's my fault now it is a little confusing <laughs> and it, it will need to be it will need to be spelled out explicitly but yeah at six yes. level, if you spend those two key points to bring your arms, you get the You can visage. bring your helm. Yeah, yep. you get the visage free. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I'm fine with that. That's cool. Yeah, I agree. Because, um, you know, this isn't this, this isn't something you're attacking with, per se. Um, it's utility-wise, it's cool, uh, you know, for insight, for intimidation, getting advantage, or for seeing in the dark, a little extra. That's... By the way, the dark and stormy night effect in the background is brought to you by Mother Nature. <laughs> getting some thunder are you oh man there's a whole lot of rain coming down right now nice all right so that was six level uh-huh at uh scrolling oh we're talking about awakening of the astral self yep at 11 so level. so that that just makes your visage and your arms better mm-hmm. um so you can do a bunch of things you can deflect acid cold fire lightning or force damage like you might a missile that's neat like you can just deflect it like Anybody that shoots an acid arrow at you, you can just, like, knock it out of the way with your astral arms. Right. Um, your astral arms will now deal extra damage. And you can uh, message 
You have like a message-like ability with one nearby creature, or you can get really loud because of your uh, your visage. It'll let you project loudly. Yep, amplify your voice to all creatures within 600 feet. That's uh, pretty... Once again, this is so anime, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, at 17th level, you get the complete astral self. You get a plus two to your armor class. Um, your extra attack that you get with your arms... You can now get three extra attacks uh, with that. And this is the cool one. You can regain key points when nearby creatures are reduced to zero hit points. And you don't just get one key point back. You get key points back equal to your wisdom modifier, which at 17th level is probably pretty high. Should be plus five at that point. Yeah, probably plus five. So if you're if you're playing this path, it should be plus five or plus six or plus seven or whatever it is, right? Yep. So if you're you know, and that it's creature, not enemy. So if one of your allies falls, five key points back. If um, you know, if you're fighting six different creatures, that's thirty key points back uh, by the end of the combat, assuming you win. Yeah. The um, the neat thing about that is is your if you're going to hit up your astral self, you can pretty much just continually be using your astral self as long as you keep knocking people down. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is an interesting thing, because there's not very much you can use key on that you would want to at that point, I don't think. Uh, well, it depends. It depends on what... Well, that's true, because I was thinking, well, you could do all these other things, but those are all... Bonus uh, actions. Well, no, but th- they're all different archetypes of the monk. And you can't oh. take those if you're taking this. Yeah, the only um, I went and looked at the monk thing because I wanted to see what what would be the use of that. Um, so the extra attack feature with your astral barrage is a bonus action. Right. Um, flurry of blows is a bonus action. Uh, the taking the dodge action or the dash action, which is monk base, is also a bonus action. Um, the only key ability I think that is not a bonus action is that you can spend a key point to reroll a saving throw. Is so that's that's useful. Is, is stunning. Stunning fist. That's, I think that's isn't that part of a. Um, yeah, I, I can't. I'll let you know in a second. I'm gonna. I, I'm looking at the monk class right now in D and D Beyond. Uh, I'm pretty sure stunning fist was part of a. Um, okay. A, 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 an ability path, right? No, stunning strike is fifth level. Yeah. Stunning strike. Uh, yeah, you can spend a key point to attempt a stunning strike, so that yeah. you can use it for that too. Right. Which at that point you would be doing pretty much every time you attacked. Oh um, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so. Yeah. Unless you're trying to save up your points, you know. So, so like the other, like any other playtest class, um, I I would want to see it in action before I made a final verdict. But I really like the flavor of this, um, just because of who I am as a player and as a DM and as a designer. Um, and I don't see it as being too horribly overpowered compared to any of the other uh, monk ways. So we'll see. Really, I just want this particular tradition, the way of the astral self, to have a bunch of, like, options for, like, the fists, the helmets, and the body, and then, like, like a chart of, like, 20 of them for each one, like, another, like, little add-on that you can pick so that when you, when you, uh, when you pick your arms, like, like, you get this little extra benefit that goes along with your arm type, and then, of course, like, you know, that proceeds forward, and then make it like sort of a rock paper scissors. How some arms are better, some spirit visages are better against other spirit spirit or astral cells are better against other astral cells. Because then you have your anime game <laughs> you in D and D. You and your anime game. 
I love I love so I love manga and I love I love shonen shonen anime so like things like One Piece and uh, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood and things like that and that kind of storytelling and um, the way that the fights go on are perfect for something like this but then you need really much better like one on one dueling rules because mm-hmm. one on one fights in D and D are boring just saying it's true uh, okay that's it I'm done no so <laughs> uh, let us know what you think. Uh, we have forums now. We do. You should come to the forums. Anybody listening can go to our forums. Chris, where are those forums? Forums.misdirectedmark.com. There you go. And you can go there and you can tell us your thoughts on we, these two uh, Unearthed Arcana products. We also have an upcoming giveaway for that. The first hundred people that come to our forums, we're going to give one of them a uh, bag through and some dice. Sweet. So we will mail you a dice bag with some dice inside of it. It looks like a little Cthulhu bag. It's great. Awesome. So come join the forums. Leave a leave a post. Introduce yourself so that I know that you're there. Uh, let's talk about D and D at PAX West. Oh yes, real quick. Uh, when this show drops, it'll probably be very close to PAX West. And if you are going to be at PAX West, there are some D and D things happening. Um, on Friday night, there's Acquisitions Incorporated Live. That's the big show. Um, Friday afternoon at from three to four, there is the Tale of the Years: Baldur's Gate, The Hells and Beyond where you can learn all about those topics, which are highlighted in the next D&D product, which is Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus. Um, Friday afternoon, right after that seminar, is a panel that I will be on called From Green Flame to Phasers, Creating in Another's World, where a bunch of us, uh, a panel of several people, including Teo Sabadia uh, and Scott Fitzgerald Gray, We'll talk about um, not just the Acquisition Incorporated book, but any sort of game creation where you're using other people's IP. What are some of the pitfalls, and what are some of the challenges, what are some of the joys, and then you can ask your questions um, from all of us who have worked on various things, from D&D to Star Trek to um, to a bunch of things. Um, if you want to hear more about the official... Uh, Acquisitions Incorporated book. There is the AI, the official book panel, Saturday at 2.30. And there, if you go to the Wizards website and check out their D&D at PAX West link, you will also see a ton of other panels and live plays. Um, there's gaming for charity. There's autograph sessions. There is um, the High Rollers. Queer Quest by Battles and Terrific Transformations, um, you know, talking about video uh, game tabletops in terms of gender and another sexuality. There's Tabletop Meeting Digital, Game Design Breakdown, you name it, there is a panel that's discussing it. So many things. Mm-hmm. All the things. I got one more announcement. Yes. So, by the time you hear this, I imagine that the Streets of Avalon will be available for purchase on Drive-Thru RPG, mm-hmm. because we've fulfilled pretty much everything for the base game. Yes. The boxes are out. The uh, There's actually an unboxing video that somebody put together, Joe Schwick, one of our backers. Um, and, uh, you know, the books have all been sent to where they... The, the coupons have all been sent where they need to be sent to. Yep. So, so you know... If, yeah. In case you don't know, the Streets of Avalon is a book that we did with Encoded Designs. Um, Brett... I can't pronounce his last name, so I'll say Brett B. Yep. Um, was the uh, 
main designer and then encoded designs did the rest of the development production and so on so it is a fifth edition compatible product that has a lankmar feel i would say right yes. the green mouser one big... green gray gray did i say green mouser <laughs> Yeah, I've got green flame stuck in my head. Falford <laughs> um, the Gray Mouser, um, one big city called Avalon, mm-hmm. and all of the adventures and misadventures that take place there. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's kind of dark and grim and gritty. Mm-hmm. So if you like, like Lankmar, it's very sword and sorcery. Yep. All right, uh, let's move on to our topic for the day. So Acquisitions Incorporated, Part One. So we're going to talk about Chapter 1, which covers some of the high-level concepts of an Acquisitions Incorporated campaign. Uh, Then it covers the history of AI as an organization, giving a very trimmed-down version of the games they've played over the years. And then there's a a quick franchise fast generator for people who, uh, which they call lazy in the book, because this book is hilarious. I just want to throw it out there. Uh, It is something. It is something. It's pretty funny. There's I I read it, I giggled a bunch of times the first chapter. Yeah, I've been rereading it. Or some parts that I didn't work on reading it for the first time. And uh-huh. I was just like, this is the funniest thing I've read in a while. <laughs> so, so Sean, what what would you say is Acquisitions Incorporated? It is D&D, first and foremost. It brings to D&D a bit of the comical but dark corporate structure to, to D&D. So if you think of The Office, uh-huh. or if you think of, what's the, um, I, I, I need you to help me on this, Chris. Sure. There, there is a, like, a Cthulhu-ish sort of... Oh, The Laundry. The Laundry, yes. That, where it's, it's The Office meets Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. Yep. Also, if you're into British uh, comedies, the IT crowd would probably fit into this, too. Sure. So it, it brings to D&D this layer of corporate intrigue and satire um, that I think fits well in today's modern world. I agree. It's, it's all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Just, just, just if you mash those two things together, that, that's what this book is all about. Right. Now, the important thing to know is even if you're not into the whole office comedy part, of, of it, there is still a deep and rich story that underlies the Acquisitions Incorporated world. And you can forget the satire and forget the comedy, and you can use it as a totally um, legitimate base fantasy world. And it even gets into some pretty grim places, and you can make it, instead of dark comedy, just dark. Yeah, you can go that way with it for sure. I just think that the comedic aspect comes from the disjointed um, idea between the the office side of things mm-hmm. and the fantasy side of things. Right. the The way I like to describe it is, it is just like your D and D game at home, where you have all sorts of off topic jokes. Only those off topic jokes are part of the game. Right? Yeah. You, you, yeah. You bring it in and you lean into it. Rather than, you know, saying these offhand remarks and then getting on with the regular swinging of the sword. Yeah, there's a thing that I love about humor in um, in storytelling. If the humor is actually part of the story, it's funnier to me. Exactly. Right. And this takes the humor and puts it of, of like like modern day office politics and things like that and puts it right inside the story. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I'll actually have to work a lot less hard if I'm running an Acquisitions Incorporated game to make the humor all make sense because that, that matters to me right. personally. It doesn't matter to everybody. It matters to me, though. Yeah. And my own home game group very much are they're, – they're very much like the Acquisitions Incorporated crew because they're hilarious. They're funny. But they make that funny part of the game rather than just being outside the game. Yeah, that and, sounds like a wonderful game to play in. Yeah. So that's why you know this this project was so cool for me. Yeah. So when I was reading this first chapter, the um the book asks the reader to think about a couple of things. It asks the th- the reader to think about the big bads mm-hmm. of your game as CEOs of mega corporations right. running their their giant webs and networks of people for some um some financial or you know whatever end right like they usually money mm-hmm. usually control. Because that's usually what mega corporations are all about, um, and that really fits pretty well for for a big bad, mm-hmm. even in D and D, right? Yeah, well, I mean, D and D already has this, right? The Xanathar, right? He is a a big bad evil dude or beholder, beholder. Uh, at the at the center of a guild, right? A mega corporation, a mega corporation, a dragon in 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 her lair with all these kobold servants. She is the CEO of her organization. Her kobolds are out there working to bring her more gold. If she needs to get involved, she does. But for the most part, she would rather sit at the center of her her company and delegate the responsibilities and and chill in her big pile of gold. Yeah, I mean, a bunch of elithids just trying to uh, you know invade the um, the prime material plane and you know bring madness to people is just a marketing campaign. Mm-hmm. It really is. It, yeah. I mean, so all of these things are there. Uh, so you, And they just need that one little tweak to take them from their, you know, their high fantasy um, incarnation to this, this business model incarnation. Yeah. And then it also asks us to think of adventuring parties as limited liability corporations, which is might be the best description for an adventuring party I've ever heard. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Because, you know, yes, we just burned down the orphanage, but really, what can you do? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, also, we're going to send you into this tomb that, uh, you know, has like a 5% survival rate. Yep. But there's a lot of money in there. Yeah. So, you know, high risk, high reward, right? Exactly. Exactly. The junk bond market. <laughs> the junk bond market. <laughs> All right. Uh, then it also goes on to say that hireling sidekicks, apprentices, and other paid workers are back in this book, and they are given um, some treatment so that they can be utilized for uh, for story and for comedic effect. Yeah. So it's funny because back in the in the AD and D first edition days, it would take most groups a long time to level. So if you got to tenth or eleventh level, you might play. If you play once a week, you might play for a couple of months before you gain a level. And sometimes you'd get tired, but tired of the, the character, tired of where you were. You just needed a little break. And many times, if you followed the rules, you had these hirelings and these servants. What you would do is then make first-level versions of characters. They became your hirelings, and they went off on their own little adventures. And you could play that for a week or two and then go back to your, your main characters. You could do this here. Um, whether, you don't have to make them actual characters, but they're, they, they have their own stories, and they're working for you, so you could 
you could make that a side quest. You could spend an evening doing that rather than playing with your own characters. Yeah, absolutely. That I mean that sounds that sounds like a perfect way to get a break if you're the people kind of people that play weekly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and also still keep your campaign going and playing the same world, so it's not anything really super different. Right. Um, and you still get that experience that you want, and you get to further your story along from a different point of view. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, okay, so that's really what the first chapter is all about, kind of talking about that. Then they go into the history, right? And um, I just want to, I wanted to read this part of the text to uh, to show off the kind of storylines that can occur in an Acquisitions Incorporated game. Is that is that okay, Sean? Can yes, I do that? Absolutely. All right. So Omen, Omen's own sister, Portentia. So Omen is the person who started Acquisitions Incorporated. Portentia now runs and serves a uh, competing company called Dran Enterprises because Omen, Omen's, Omen Dran's his name. Mm-hmm. Originally founded by what turned out to be a false version of Omen's lost sister, Auspicia, Dran Enterprises has long sought to execute a hostile takeover of Acquisitions Incorporated. All such efforts have been skillfully rebuffed, of course, with Acquisitions Incorporated embracing its place as an always independent and clearly superior operation. Mm-hmm. I mean, that if that doesn't sort of like... I mean, that doesn't sound like a D&D storyline. That sounds like a, um, a a corporate espionage storyline, right? Yep. And but yet it happens in this game. And so that's what's cool about this is if, you, if you're if you into that, if you're into the, the overstory of Acquisitions Incorporated with Omen and his family, um, you can, as the DM, get the players involved directly in that. If that's not something that your players or you are interested in, then you can just go off and you can do your own thing. You don't have to interact specifically with with Acquisitions Incorporated Home Office at all, mm-hmm. and and still do your own thing. So there's that. There's a, a wide array of stories that you can tell. Whether it's tapping into this ten year long um, saga of of Acquisitions Incorporated and Omen Drawn, or just do your own thing. You know, several hundred thousand miles away. So the um, other thing I wanted to mention, so I just mentioned, a, a, Sean's absolutely right, but the, the the point was is like these are very different kinds of story stories that you can tell mm-hmm. with this because of the, the setup, right? Right. Um, there's also the, the D&D stuff and kind of the mesh of that. So like there's a moment they're, they're talking about cloning Jim Dark Magic. Jim Dark Magic is a long time employee and one of the, uh, one of the original characters mm-hmm. of Acquisitions Incorporated. Yeah. Um, they, he was cloned to get around the death curse because de- when the death curse was a thing, Jim was dying because Jim may have died at a previous time. Yep. Um, and then the clone was later sold to a devil for profit and other things. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, why not? You have a resource. You might as well sell it, right? Right. Yeah, so it's, I mean, you know, it's... <laughs> Sorry. It's, when when I ha- I've gone back and I've listened to the original podcast from 2009, you know, all the way up through present, um, when, when I was working on the book, and it's just, it's so much, this is your D&D game, right? This is just like your D&D game, uh, but the... The brilliance of it is basically um, Tycho Brahe, uh, Jerry, who who plays Omendron, is just this brilliant storyteller. And I can just listen to him talk and start laughing. Uh, just the way he delivers even normal lines is, is hilarious. And so, you know, the way that they 
took these jokes that you know just started with oh look we're an adventuring company oh we're a company uh you know from just from that original moment and the way that they've intertwined a regular D&D game with with this business is is brilliant and so you know lean into that and use the the work that they've done already to to inspire your own game so you know maybe uh hey they cloned jim dark magic they didn't need the clone so he sold it maybe he clones all his employees and now there's a clone of you running around or, I feel like I feel like they probably only clone their high level employees just to have a backup just in case. But as the DM, you can use any of this. That's you know, true. Th- that's my point. Is don't just don't just use it as that's their story. It's your story now. When you you know st- decide to run an AI themed game, you know use all of that that's come before. If your if your players are fans of Acquisitions Incorporated, they'll be delighted because they get the reference. Mm-hmm. And if they're even if they're not, it's great story. Yeah, and the jokes are are there too to be had. Like I usually have a hard time putting comedy into games, like like and making it make sense. But this does it for you in a lot of ways. It helps set it up. Right. Um, so you know, use the comedy, use the the brilliant backstory in your own game if if it works, if it works for you. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to borrow uh, heavily. Yeah. Last thing, uh, the chapter finishes with a fast franchise generator which covers uh, a franchise logo and livery for example three werewolves howling at the moon um headquarters locations like an early model airship very early the balloon is mostly patches at this point a motley assortment of ship sails cloaks and animal skins that'd be a fun place to have a headquarters right Mm -hmm. um hq quirks i mean as if the balloon thing wasn't you know already quirky um every friday the color of the walls changes to a to different festive themes that's pretty fun Mm -hmm. Uh, memorable major domos, for instance, a uh, a druid that keeps an open door policy for any and all animals seeking shelter. The cleaning policy is less rigorous. <laughs> well then, <Yes. laughs> and reliable connections. Uh, so Kim the kid, the best fence in town. Yep. So things like that. I also really like G. The only thing known about this information broker is the dead drop point where they exchange messages, and that they're never wrong. Mm-hmm. They're just called G. G. So uh, that's that's a way to quickly g- generate your f- franchise, or at least like you know the out outside pieces of your franchise. Right, and oh. and I just want to mention quickly, you know, the the whole idea of a franchise, it's just like McDonald's, right? You have your home office, and when you decide to open a franchise, you get things from the home office that help you, and in return, you give a small amount of your profit or a large amount, depending, uh, back to the home company. And, you know, that is a business thing, but it's very much a useful D&D tool as well, because yeah. now you have powerful people that can give your players help if they need it. But there, there's also that conflict uh, because they are more powerful and they do, quote unquote, you know, own a share of what you're doing. So... You know, it's just it's a it's a tool for storytelling. It's mm-hmm. a tool for delivering mechanical benefits if you so choose. Yep. Hey, here's a magic item you need. You can borrow it. Um, make sure you give it back in one piece. Oh, whoops! You broke it while you were using it. What are we going to do about that? You know, there's <laughs> there's all there's story, there's mechanics, all of it fits beautifully into this sort of franchise system. 
Yeah, and we're going to talk about all of that um, starting next week with Chapter 2, Growing Your Franchise. There that you might go. take us a couple weeks to get through. There's a lot of stuff in there. There is stuff. So uh, we'll we'll start there. We'll see how far we get. Um, we might even trim down our announcements section, but we really wanted to get into that Barbarian and Monk. They're always interesting yeah. and fascinating. So, But uh, next week, Chapter 2, Growing Your Franchise. All right. All right, well, let's do some uh, some Patreon shout-outs now. Uh, Brandon Barnes, the old-school DM Randy Farmer, the Mad Wizard Merwin, who patrons us, even though I don't know why you do. But thank you, Sean. Sure. Uh, Troy Sandlin, Will Doyle, Zach Goins, Chris Constantine, Cindy Moore, Eric Mengi, Eric Simon, Miko Froelich, Andrew Dempsey, uh, V. Waxberg, Brett, Chris Steele, I can't do it as well as Phil can, uh, Curtis Y. Takahashi, Daniel Thomas, Dennis Malloy, J. David Chrisman, J.T. Evans, Jem Pixelscapes Gagney, Joseph Peralta, Mike Amer, Ninjabi, The Rainmaker, Richard Drew Wayne, and Richard Wyatt, oh, there's a few more, Roy McLeod, Savannah Sizer, Scott Ryder, and Sean P. Kelly. And speaking of patrons, if you would like to be a patron of Dallas D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page. It's right there on the website. Or you can just go to Patreon and look up uh, Misdirected Mark. And for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out. Or for $4 a month, you not only get a shout-out, but you also get to see our pre-production show notes and access to our Slack room, the Misdirected Mark Slack room, where you can chat with us about anything you so choose. Uh, you know, even outside of that, just go to the forums. Just throwing it out there, right? Yeah. Like, go to the forums. You could talk to us, and you don't have to be a patron to do that. That's true. Uh, and we'll talk to you. Um, if you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. You know what I'm going to say. Those help, even if you're not listening via Apple Podcast. So help rate and rank our show, make us more visible, and, you know, let us know how we're doing. Yeah, and share when you see us on Facebook or on Twitter. We'd greatly appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Sean, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, and now you can find me on the forums. Yeah, you can hit me up um, at the Light One Hundred and One, or you can go and hit me up at Misdirected Mark on Twitter. That's the the network and the show's Twitter. We only have the one these days. You can also just go to the website, aside from the forums, where you can catch other great shows such as this one, Bone Stone and Obsidian. So Wayne and Robert, they take a monthly deep dive into the dark sun setting and discuss it across all editions of D&D. And fascinating, the last episode that they did was all about how they would do dark sun in 5th edition D&D. Down with D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Mr. Mad Wizard Merwin, what are we going to do now? We are going to go kill some monsters. And then sell the stuff and give the profits to our corporation, right? Absolutely. Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? Down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D?